Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I'm the director of the museum. Since the last episode, much work has been carried out here to prepare us for reopening. We've created a one-way route around the collection, we've installed sneeze screens throughout our reception areas, as well as installing hand sanitization points. The routes in and out of the museum are now segregated and safe. However, there are still too few tourists in London to make it worthwhile reopening. We are currently planning to reopen on 1st of September, though even that date has yet to be confirmed. So, on we go with the podcast, which I hope you are finding a help during the monotony of lockdown. This week, I'll be dealing with the massive subject of the guards in the Second World War. Clearly, I have set myself quite a task to boil down the exploits of five regiments during a global conflict into three episodes. So I'm getting some help from a variety of reference sources, not the least of which is Julian Paget's excellent book, The Story of the Guards. In this episode, we'll follow the five regiments in their actions up to the end of the North African campaign. So, without further ado, let's dive right in to September 1939. When Neville Chamberlain announced the outbreak of the Second World War on Sunday 3rd of September 1939, the mobilisation of the Household Division was remarkably similar to that of 1914. The Brigade of Guards moved swiftly onto a wartime footing. Five battalions were formed into the 1st and 7th Guards Brigades, which, as in 1914, joined the British Expeditionary Force in France within a few weeks. Two regular battalions, 3rd Battalion Colstrian Guards and the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards, were already in Egypt. The Welsh Guards were in Gibraltar, and three battalions were at home. Reservists and volunteers poured into each regiment, and the training organisations were rapidly expanded to cope. Each regiment set up its own training battalion, and within the next 12 months, a further eight guards battalions were created, which made it possible to form five more guards brigades. In addition, the Grenadier, Coldstream and Scots Guards all formed their own holding battalions, which acted as depots for the regiment, and also carried out royal guards and wartime duties in London. This system continued until November 1943, when the three holding battalions amalgamated and became the Westminster Garrison Battalion at Wellington Barracks, which also contained a company each from the Irish and Welsh Guards. The King's Lifeguard no longer rode to Whitehall from Hyde Park Barracks, but drove there in a hired furniture van and mounted on site in khaki and wearing steel helmets. The same order of dress was adopted for the King's Guard at Buckingham Palace, but the foot guards marched to and from their duties. But the foot guards marched to and from their duties. These arrangements continued throughout the war, despite the Blitz, flying bombs and the V2s. The Allied line of defence in Europe ran along the eastern frontier of France and was protected in the south by the Maginot Line, that impregnable network of forces. The British Expeditionary Force was allotted a sector, with the French army on both flanks. They were separated from the Germans by a neutral territory of Belgium, so there was no direct contact with the enemy. There were two alternatives open to the Allies in the event of a German attack through Belgium. The first was to hold the line of the River Esco, some five miles inside Belgium, which required little change of position, but did mean giving up the whole of Belgium to the enemy without a fight. 
The second possibility was to advance 60 miles across Belgium to the line of the River Dial near the German frontier. This was a shorter line of defence and a better one, in that part of it could be flooded, but it did involve abandoning prepared positions for unprepared ones, and there was also the risk of being caught between the two. This was the course that was agreed on, and it had the overriding advantage that it might prevent Belgium being overrun. Meanwhile, the British Expeditionary Force, including the 1st and 7th Guards Brigade, spent the winter training and digging defences, called the Gort Line. There was little scope for any realism except when the 1st Guards Brigade spent a month in positions in front of the Maginot Line. So the winter passed, and in April the war opened up in Norway. Still nothing seemed to be happening in France, but the phony war was to become the real thing all too soon. Meanwhile, a bit of campaign had been continuing throughout the winter far away in the east of Finland, where this tiny but proud nation fought for survival against the overwhelming strength of Russia, at that time Germany's ally. The gallant struggle of this small country against impossible odds stirred Britain to try and help her, and at the same time to strike a blow indirectly against Germany. So in January 1940, it was decided to form a ski battalion to fight in Finland. It was commanded by a Coldstreamer, Colonel Jimmy Coates, and it was officially called the 5th Battalion Scots Guards. Unofficially, they were known as the Snowballers. Volunteers were called for from the whole British Army, and about a thousand responded, including many from the Household Division. 600 of them were officers, and 163 of them agreed to serve as NCO or Guardsmen, a supreme example of improvisation at its best, or worst. They assembled on the 6th of February 1940 and were given 23 days in which to be ready for operations. A week was spent training at Chamonix and on the 14th of March the battalion embarked for Finland. But sadly the Finns surrendered that very day and this unique force was disbanded a week later. The war began in earnest on the 9th of April 1940 when German forces invaded Norway and rapidly moved northwards. Britain had in fact been planning to occupy certain key ports in northern Norway herself in order to forestall just such a move by Germans, but now it was too late. The 24th Guards Brigade, commanded by Brigadier the Honourable W. Fraser Grenadier Guards, had been warned for active service on April the 1st, and they were now dispatched to Norway in great haste as part of the British force under General Mackenzie, sailing from Greenock on the 11th of April. The brigade consisted of the 1st Battalion Irish Guards, 1st Battalion Scots Guards and the 1st Battalion South Wales Borderers. The principle of loading units together with their equipment had not yet been learned and the Irish Guards found that their maps were on another ship while the Scots Guards landed with push bikes as their only transport and smoke bombs only for their 2-inch mortars. The plan had been to land at the key port of Narvik and to occupy it but the Germans had got there first. The 24th Guards Brigade therefore landed instead at Harstead, 35 miles to the north. On the 30th of April, Brigade Commander was wounded and Lieutenant Colonel Traps Lomax, commanding the 1st Battalion Scots Guards, took over. Other British forces, which had landed in southern Norway, had been forced to withdraw on the 3rd of May, leaving the Germans free to concentrate against General Mackenzie's force in the north. The plan, therefore, was to block the enemy advance northwards a task which was allotted to the 24th Guards Brigade. On the 10th of May came the news of the invasion of Holland and Belgium, and the next day the Scots Guards, now called Scissor Force, sailed out of Harstead towards Mo, 150 miles south of Narvik, 
with orders to hold it at all costs. The Irish Guard should have joined them, but their ship was bombed and had to return to Harstead. The South Wales Borderers ship, which contained only three tanks available to the brigade, ran aground and sank. So the task of halting the German advance, intended for a complete brigade, devolved onto the 1st Battalion Scots Guards, commanded by their second-in-command. Before recording how they faced this challenge, it is worth telling in more detail the story of the Irish Guards' ill-fated voyage. Just after midnight on the 14th-15th of May, three Heinkel bombers attacked their ship as it sailed through the Arctic twilight and it was set on fire. Ammunition began exploding and it was found that none of the lifeboats could be lowered. Men could survive only a few minutes in Arctic waters, so as little could be done except to wait and hope for a rescue. The raging fire had now divided the ship into two parts, with the officers, many of whom had been killed, all at one end, while most of the men were at the other. But as the guardsmen fired up on deck, they immediately heard the familiar voice of Regimental Sergeant Major Stack. Get on parade and face that way! The sentries on deck were posted as markers, and the battalion was soon formed up in mass with its weapons and equipment. As they waited, as they waited, the Padre, Father Kavanagh, started to recite the rosary. And with bared heads on a burning ship in the Arctic Circle, men said the prayers that they had learnt long ago at the quiet churches and farmhouses of Ireland. The bombers were still attacking, but two escort vessels came alongside and began taking men off. The captain of one of them, Commander Krask, RN, of HMS Wolverine, has described the scene. We closed on the burning and sinking ship. I never before realised what the discipline of the guards was. We got a gangway shipped forward, and the men were ordered to file off onto us. There was no confusion, no hurry, and no sign of haste or flurry. I knew there might only be a matter of minutes in which to get them off. I had four ropes fixed so as to hurry up the transfer. They continued to file steadily off in one line. I cursed and swore at them, but they had their orders to file, and they filed. I saw someone who seemed to be a young officer, and I told him in no measured terms to get them off by all four escape ropes. In a second they confirmed to this order by one of their own officers, still steadily and without fuss or confusion. Their conduct, in the most trying circumstances, in the absence of senior officers, on a burning and sinking ship, open at any moment to new attack, was as fine as, or finer, than the conduct in the old days of the soldiers on the Birkenhead. It may interest you to know that 694 men were got off that ship in a mere 16 minutes. The battalion had lost its commanding officer, and virtually all its senior officers, but it was back in action five days later. Meanwhile, the Scots Guards had been fighting a series of fierce delaying actions under hopeless conditions. They faced incessant air attacks where there is virtually no darkness and the Germans had complete air superiority. They were constantly outflanked by German troops, trained and equipped for mountain warfare, and there was little time for sleep or rest. They marched a hundred miles in a week, fighting the whole way and with no support until the Irish Guards joined on the 20th of May. But the general position was grim, and both battalions were withdrawn back to Harstead by the 31st of May. Every available soldier was now needed to defend Britain, and it had been decided to end the Norwegian campaign. On 5th of June, King Harkon left Norway, and three days later the 24th Guards Brigade was back home.
Despite seeing Denmark and Norway overrun by Germans in April and May 1940, Holland and Belgium still maintained their neutrality in the faint hope they might prevent Hitler from attacking them. They were soon disillusioned. On the 10th of May 1940, at 5.30, the Zitzkrieg ended and the Blitzkrieg began, with fierce air attacks on airfields and key towns in Holland, whose armed forces could do little against an overwhelming German armoured and airborne assault. In accordance with Plan D, the British Expeditionary Force, including both 1st and 7th Guards Brigades, immediately moved forward to the line of the River Dial and began to take up their new defensive positions around Louvain, fortunately with little interference from the Germans. On the morning of the 11th, while the British Expeditionary Force was moving forward across Belgium and the Germans were rapidly overrunning Holland, the newly formed 20th Guards Brigade, back in England, were returning to camp from a night exercise. They arrived back to find themselves ordered to move at once. Only the 2nd Battalion Irish Guards were immediately available, but they, with one company of Welsh Guards under command, sailed for Holland the next day. They were called Harpoon Force, and their task was to safeguard the Dutch government and restore the situation in the capital. At dawn on the 13th they arrived at the Hook to find clouds of smoke rising from Rotterdam, while the Hook was also subjected to frequent air attacks. They disembarked, wondering slightly where to start on restoring the situation, when at 11.30 hours, the unmistakable figure of Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands stepped out of a car and approached. Her wish was that the Royal Navy would take her to one of the Dutch islands so that she could continue the struggle from there. But no one had any charts of the local minefields, and so she was reluctantly persuaded to board a British destroyer for England, followed by her government. The next day Holland surrendered, and the Irish and Welsh guards returned home, only to be called on a week later for a rather sterner task at Boulogne. The triumphant German panzer forces, having conquered Holland, now swept across Belgium, overwhelming the British Expeditionary Force, who were forced back into France, and on the 20th of May the Germans reached the Channel coast at Abbeville. The British Expeditionary Force was now cut off, not only from the rest of the French army to the south, but also from their own supplies coming from Cherbourg and the Atlantic ports. Worst of all, there was a danger that a German thrust northwards from Abbeville would capture the channel ports and so isolate a British force in France from England. To prevent this last threat, and to cover the withdrawal of Britain's only army, troops were rushed from England to hold the vital channel ports, a Green Jacket Brigade to Calais and the 20th Guards Brigade to Boulogne. If you get the chance, do read Airy Neve's book, The Flames of Calais in which he describes the defence of Calais by, relatively speaking, a handful of troops, cooks and bottle washers. Once again the Guards Brigade was on an exercise when it was ordered on the 21st of May to move to France the same afternoon. This time both Guards Battalions were prepared, and within 36 hours they were facing the tanks of the German 2nd Panzer Division on the outskirts of Boulogne. For three days the two battalions held out, and the German corps commander recorded in his diary, the enemy is fighting tenaciously for every inch of ground. But the pressure against them grew daily, and they were forced steadily back into an ever-decreasing perimeter, until by 24th of May they were hanging on grimly to nothing but a tight area around the docks. 
In the final stages, as the Germans closed in on the area around the quay, the two battalions received impressive support from the Royal Navy, whose sailors fought ashore alongside the guardsmen, whose ships' guns fired at point-blank range from open decks against the German tanks. On the evening of the 24th, their task now complete, they were ordered to withdraw at once, and the Welsh guards lost most of two companies who could not be evacuated. But even then, the Welshmen left behind fought on for two more days before being captured. They were commanded by Major Windsor Lewis, who was wounded and captured but made a remarkable escape six months later. It was this moment that a captain in a line regiment recalls watching a party of garden being marched onto the quay by a drill sergeant, who halted them and, despite some shell fire, inspected their weapons. He then marched up to the captain, saluted smartly and asked permission to carry on and embark. By a strange coincidence, while the 2nd Battalion of the Welsh Guards was making its last-ditch stand in Boulogne, their 1st Battalion was doing much the same at Arras, where the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Copeland Griffiths, had been appointed garrison commander. With his own battalion, three line battalions and various other groups, he held the town from the 17th to the 24th of May despite fierce attacks by the Germans, including Rommel's 7th Armoured Division. Lord Gort reported in his dispatches, The defence of Arras had been carried out by a small garrison, hastily assembled, but well commanded and determined to fight. It had imposed a valuable delay on a greatly superior enemy force against which it had blocked a vital road centre. Meanwhile, 1st and 7th Guards Brigade on the River Dial were involved in the grim withdrawal back through Belgium to Dunkirk. For almost two weeks they marched and fought, occupying and abandoning one rearguard position after another, attacked by air and hampered by streams of refugees. At one moment, 1st Guards Brigade were marching on the right of the road, while the 2nd Infantry Brigade marched on the left, and the vehicles of the 1st Division drove down the centre. There was some sharp fighting and two Victoria Crosses were won before the last battles were fought around Dunkirk. The 7th Guards Brigade's last action was at Furness before they were evacuated on the 1st of June. 1st Guards Brigade held the perimeter around Hondeschutter and also withdrew on the 1st of June, except for the 2nd Battalion Coldstream Guards who were ordered to form a final rear guard for the British Expeditionary Force. They did not finally leave Dunkirk until 2100 hours on the 2nd of June, aboard HMS Sabre. It was a disastrous retreat, very similar to those at Corona and Mons. But, as in 1809 and 1914, so in 1940 there were incidents that proved that the Guards' traditions continued unchanged. The 3rd Battalion Grenadier Guards, for example, were seen marching into Dunkirk at attention, with arms sloped and looking like guardsmen just as the Grenadiers had swung into Corona 131 years before. It was perhaps of particular significance to them because all three of their battalions of the regiment were involved and it was also the scene of their regiment's first battle 282 years before. A quartermaster of the Welsh Guards was seen standing waist-deep in the sea dishing out tea to his men from a dixie held by two guardsmen above sea level. Somehow, over 330,000 men of the British Expeditionary Force were brought back to England in the miracle of Dunkirk, and they included most of the six battalions of foot guards who had been in the British Expeditionary Force. 
each with their own complement of personal weapons intact. Nor is it a legend that their trousers were pressed, wrote Field Marshal Lord Alexander in his memoirs. The guards returned to a Briton standing at bay, threatened daily with invasion, but defiant still, as the whole country rallied to the inspiring leadership of Winston Churchill. Pikes were issued to the Home Guard as in 1803, the same Martello towers were manned and the same beaches were watched and the same strategy planned for a fighting withdrawal. The holding battalions of the foot guards protected vulnerable points in and around London, fought fires, patrolled London parks and carried on mounting royal guards. Three special guards were also mounted, which deserve mention. The first was a detachment of lifeguards in armoured cars, which was detailed to escort the king when he travelled in dangerous areas, a revival of the historic role for which they had first been formed in 1658. The second force was the Coates Mission, formed in June 1940 to safeguard the royal family in the event of an invasion. It was provided by the holding battalion of the Colstrian Guards and was commanded initially by Major Jimmy Coates, who had formed the ski battalion in February that year. Plans were made to escort the royal family to selected private houses in various parts of the country and to guard them there. Fortunately, there was never any need to put these plans into effect and the force was finally disbanded in January 1943. The final special force was a company, again provided by the Colstrian Guards, to guard the Prime Minister at his country base at Chequers from September 1940 to July 1943. An unexpected duty for the Scots Guards holding battalion, stationed at the Tower of London, was to guard Rudolf Hess when he was when he was held at the Tower after landing in Britain by parachute on the 10th of May 1941 in a dramatic attempt to arrange peace terms. He was transferred the next week to Mitchett, where he became the responsibility of the training battalions at Purbright. The Scots Guards also had the task on the 14th of August 1941 of shooting in the miniature range of the Tower of London Joseph Jacobs, the first German spy to be executed in Britain during the war. In the museum we actually have the aiming patch that was used to place over the chest of Joseph Jacobs during the execution. Most of the household division was soon in action again. From June 1940 onwards, the Brigade of Guards had up to nine battalions engaged in the campaigns in North Africa and in Italy. In May 1941, they also formed the Guards Armoured Division, which absorbed a further eight foot guards battalions. In addition, the Household Division made a contribution to several specialist forces. The 1st British Airborne Division, which fought at Arnhem in October 1944, contained officers and men from both the Household Cavalry and the Foot Guards. A Guards Commando, number 8 company, was formed on the same basis and carried out operations in North Africa. The Household Division also formed their own patrols in the Long Range Desert Group, while many individuals operated in various clandestine and irregular organisations. The outbreak of war in September 1939 found two Guards Battalions, 3rd Battalion Coldstream and 2nd Battalion Scots, stationed in Egypt where they had been since 1937. There they remained, and when on the 10th of June 1940 Mussolini threw in his lot with Hitler in Africa, the Coldstream soon moved out into the Western Desert as part of the 7th Armoured Division, the famous Desert Rats. With them, they patrolled the frontier between Egypt and the Italian territory of Cyrenaica until they were forced back to Mersa Matru in September 1940. On the 8th of December, General Sir Archibald Wavell 
the commander-in-chief in the Middle East, launched his brilliant counter-attack against the Axis with a puny force known as Wavell's 30,000. He thrust 80 miles westward to Sidi Bahraini, capturing no less than 180,000 prisoners in the process. The Coldstream, who were the only guards unit in this campaign, signalled back at one moment they could not count the number of prisoners they held, but that there were about five acres of officers and 200 acres of other ranks. When the Coldstream Guards returned to Egypt in 1941, they joined with the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards and 1st Battalion Durham Light Infantry to form the 22nd Guards Brigade, commanded by Brigadier I.D. Erskine of the Scots Guards. But now a new enemy had appeared in North Africa, in the person of General Rommel, who, together with his renowned Africa Corps, formed perhaps the finest fighting force produced by Germans in the war. On the 31st of March 1941, Rommel attacked Wavell's depleted forces and drove them back to the frontier. For the next nine months, 22nd Guards Brigade fought with the 7th Armoured Division and the 1st South African Division in the to-and-fro desert warfare of that period and until the position stabilised in January 1942 around Gazala and Tobruk, both of which were later to be the scenes of worthy battle honours for the Guards Brigade. The defensive position, known as the Gazala Line, consisted of a series of strong points or boxes protected by minefields, each of which were provisioned for a siege. One of the most vital of these was the Knightsbridge box, which dominated the main axis of advance for any German attack eastwards. Rommel could achieve no strategic success so long as it was held by British hands. While from the Allied point of view, it was not only an essential pivot for any armoured operation, but it also controlled all the supply routes to the Gazala line. It was some two miles square with the infantry around the perimeter, artillery in the centre and anti-tank guns sighted in depth. The defence of this key position was entrusted to the 22nd Guards Brigade, now renamed the 201st Guards Brigade. Into the Knightsbridge box went the 3rd Battalion Coldstream Guards, 2nd Regiment Royal Horse Artillery and one company of Scots Guards and some of their two-pounder anti-tank guns. To the north of Knightsbridge were the remainder of the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards on the, the Rigel Ridge, while to the south the Free French Brigade held the equally important Beer Hashim box. On the 27th of May, Rommel attacked, and as expected, he bypassed all strong points and penetrated deep into the 8th Army position. But he still had to eliminate these boxes, and despite fierce attacks, the garrison held out. These tactics by both sides were remarkably similar to the French cavalry charges against the British squares at Waterloo, except on this occasion the artillery were within the square. On the 4th of June, the 8th Army launched a counter-attack which developed into a fierce armoured battle known as the Cauldron. Rommel emerged the winner and the Allies sustained severe losses. Only six days later, the Free French at Bir Hashim to the south were overrun after a most gallant defence, and Rommel was now free to turn against Knightsbridge. He attacked fiercely, and at zero one hours, on the 12th of June, the garrison was ordered to withdraw. But it was considered too late to do so that night, and they had to hold on for one more day. It was a grim day too, particularly for the Scots Guards. They were heavily attacked on the Rigel Ridge, but received magnificent support from the eight 25-pound field guns of the 6th South African Field Battery who fired over open sights at the German tanks and fought their guns to the last. 
but no armoured support was available and the enemy tanks could not be kept at bay much longer. Throughout a day of hand-to-hand -hand fighting against the bulk of the 21st Panzer Division, the Rigel Ridge was held, but only after a most bitter and costly struggle. At dusk, both battalions were finally ordered to withdraw. Somehow, the few remaining tanks of the 22nd Armoured Brigade managed to hold open a corridor through which the weary guardsmen marched back, having held their key position for 17 days. It was after the Battle of Gazala that Rommel made his famous comment that the Guards' Brigade was almost a living embodiment of the virtues and faults of the British soldier, tremendous courage and tenacity combined with rigid lack of mobility. A dramatic description of the scene of the battle from the Rigel Ridge comes from Captain N.B. Hanmer, then in the Royal Sussex Regiment, who visited the battlefield some six months later after the Battle of Alamein. He writes, It was an amazing fact that none of these positions had been salvaged by the Germans. Not one of our men had been buried. The sand appears to have had some sort of preserving quality and the bodies were hardly decomposed. A position which impressed me greatly was the six-pounder anti-tank positions manned by the Scots Guards. They must have fired their guns until the German tanks were right on top of them. Almost every gun had the body of a Scots Guardsman drooped across the shoulder piece or slumped over the breech. Several men were still crouching in slit trenches with rifles as if they had continued engaging with the enemy with their three o three rifles while their guns had been put out of action. There was an officer lying on his face, his finger around the trigger of a brain gun. It made me feel rather moved to look at this scene, with the dead men by their guns, which they still seemed to serve even in death. The remnants of the Scots Guards now returned to Egypt, while the remainder of the 201st Guards Brigade pulled back into Tobruk, which it was planned to hold as a base for future operations. This had been successfully achieved for nine months from April to December 1941, but the position was very different now. Last time, the 30-mile perimeter had been a part of a detailed plan based on a charted minefield with a rehearsed counter-attack by troops who knew the ground and the minefields thoroughly. Now the garrison consisted of weary troops rushed into strange positions with themselves suffering from six months of neglect. Above all, there was general confusion for there was little time for the newly appointed commander to organise into a coherent force the variety of units suddenly flung into the garrison. The 201st Guards Brigade, with some 70 tanks from the 4th Battalion, the Royal Tank Regiment, reached Tobruk on the 14th of June and were placed in reserve with a counter-attack role. The brigade was now commanded by Brigadier George Johnson, Scots Guards, who took over on the day when they moved into Tobruk it consisted of 3rd Battalion Colstream Guards, 1st Battalion Worcestershire Regiment and 1st Battalion of the Sherwood Foresters. There seemed little immediate danger for Rommel was apparently fully occupied with his thrust towards Egypt, which had penetrated almost to the frontier. Then suddenly Rommel turned in his tracks and at dawn on the 20th of June struck fiercely and unexpectedly at Tobruk. On a front of only 600 yards, Stuker die bombers literally blasted a gap through the minefields into which streamed two infantry and two armoured divisions. It was an irresistible force and they broke through. At 900 hours, the Kulshin guards were ordered to counter-attack, but of the 40 tanks that should have supported them, only five now remained. 
No orders or information could be obtained from any source, and confusion grew hourly as German tanks thrust deep into the town and the dive bombers attacked with impunity. During the day, the pressure increased steadily as enemy tanks and armoured cars closed in on the infantry positions. That evening, Brigade Headquarters was overrun and the Brigadier and his staff taken prisoner, together with the commanding officer of the Coldstream Guards. There now occurred a fine example of leadership. Major Tim Saint-Hill of 3rd Battalion Coldstream Guards found himself in command of the battalion, reduced to only about 200 men. More German forces were closing in and the forward platoons had been overrun. It was impossible to contact any higher headquarters and it seemed hopeless to continue. But Major Saint-Hill did not accept defeat. Instead, he rallied whatever troops he could find organised hasty defensive positions and prepared to fight on. The night was one of growing confusion and it became increasingly obvious that no other proper defences were being organised. Next morning no orders came at all, only reports that Tobruk had surrendered and that all vehicles were to be destroyed and all troops were to wait in their positions for the enemy. Major St. Hill's reaction is said to have been to the effect that surrender was a manoeuvre that he had never been taught in the Coldstream and so he did not intend to try it out now for the first time. His force was unquestionably surrounded, and all signs of resistance by the garrison had disappeared. Indeed, they could be seen and heard destroying their vehicles and weapons. Major St. Hill decided not to follow suit, but to put his men into transport and try to escape in a body by daylight, relying on boldness, bluff and the general confusion to get them through. Head roughly due south were his orders. Drive hard, shoot hard and go right through in a confusion of dust and bullets. By luck, a South African gunner officer appeared who knew a way through the minefield. A rendezvous was fixed in the desert and at 900 hours on the 21st of June they set off. As they approached the perimeter, each driver put his foot hard down and roared into the dust of the truck ahead. The firing grew every second, and some trucks brewed up, some got lost and some were captured. But somehow 60 vehicles got through and found their way back to the British lines, with 17 officers and 183 ranks of the Coldstream Guards, and some 200 from other units. It was a fine exploit, for which Major St. Hill was awarded a well-deserved Distinguished Service Order. But there was no respite. Rommel still threatened Cairo, where civilians were being evacuated, and secret documents burned. Every man was needed for its defence, and by the end of June, survivors of the Coldstream and Scots Guards were combined into a composite Guards Battalion, which continued until the 201st Guards Brigade was reformed in September 1942 and sent to Syria. It now consisted of 6th Battalion Grenadier Guards, which had come out from the UK, 3rd Battalion Coldstream Guards and 2nd Battalion Scots Guards. No foot guards units fought at the Battle of El Alamein in October 1942, but the guards were represented there by the 1st Household Cavalry Regiment. This did not mean there were no guardsmen fighting in North Africa, for operating deep in the desert was a band of scruffy-looking, bearded figures who called themselves G Foot Guards Patrol of the Long Range Desert Patrol Group, or LRDG. G Patrol had been set up in December 1940 with volunteers from the Coldstream and Scots Guards, then in Egypt, and they were soon waging skilled guerrilla warfare behind enemy lines, carrying out surprise attacks on the rear areas of the Africa Corps, 
as well as passing back a stream of valuable information. The patrol's first exploit was a raid on an enemy post 1,100 miles out into the desert of southwest Libya. They returned to Egypt via the Sudan, covering no less than 4,300 miles in 45 days. Even this remarkable record was broken by G's patrol's last operation, in which they travelled 3,500 miles in 37 days. Less spectacular, but just as valuable, was the road watch kept by the patrol and others, which provided a detailed daily tally of how much traffic there was behind enemy lines. The patrol was disbanded in 1943, when the North African campaign ended. Some were surprised that the guards excelled at such a game, which obviously called for the greatest initiative, self-reliance and independence. But in fact, operations of this type demanded just the self-discipline and self-confidence to which all guardsmen are trained. It was no accident, wrote Michael Crichton Stewart, that the man whose gun was always ready for action, despite the desert dust, the driver whose truck tyres were always at the right pressure, the reliable guard on solitary night watch, was in barracks among the smartest on the square. The long-range desert group worked closely in North Africa with another organisation called the Special Air Service, the SAS, which not only contained a high proportion of guardsmen, but in fact had been formed by a guards officer. Second Lieutenant David Stirling had transferred in mid-1940 from the Scots Guards to No. 8 Commando, formed and commanded by Brigadier Bob Laycock of the Blues. It consisted largely of guardsmen from all regiments and formed part of the Lay Force, which was intended to capture and occupy the island of Rhodes. This operation never materialised, but the commandos moved to the Middle East in March 1941 and took part in several raids on Bardia in April. In June, however, orders came for No. 8 Commando to be disbanded, but David Sterling had other ideas. He was convinced that small groups of determined men operating behind enemy lines could achieve results out of all proportion to their numbers. As part of his thinking, he experimented with parachuting, but ended up in hospital with an injured back. Still on crutches, he decided that the only way to get his ideas across was to start at the top, i.e. the commander-in-chief. He managed to get inside headquarters, Middle Eastern Command, but not unseen. And with the sentry in pursuit, he dived into the nearest room. It was unluckily occupied by a major of his own regiment, who remembered him chiefly for going to sleep during his lectures. The meeting was unhelpful, except that it had shaken off the sentry. Risking all, he now marched boldly into the office of a very much more senior officer, General Neil Ritchie, Deputy Chief of General Staff. Greatly to his credit, the General not only listened as the young officer explained his strange purpose, but then, impressed by what he had heard, arranged a prompt meeting with the Commander-in-Chief, General Orkinlek. The outcome was that Sterling obtained permission to recruit a force of seven officers and 59 other ranks for his scheme, and so the SAS was born. This interview was held by many to be Sterling's greatest achievement. The first recruits included Jock Lewis, an Australian in the Welsh Guards, and Tom Langton of the Irish Guards. The former had rowed for Oxford and the latter for Cambridge, and it was in honour of this that the light and dark blue background was chosen for the SAS badge of a winged dagger. The SAS worked closely with the Long Range Desert Patrol Group, 
but whereas the latter specialised in desert reconnaissance and observation, the SAS were primarily demolition experts who arrived at their objective by land, sea or air as appropriate. Both groups worked on the same rule of leadership, a basis also of guards' discipline, that one never expects others to do what one is not prepared to do first oneself. Nor were they alone in such activities. Other guards were indulging in many similar exploits throughout the war. Among them was Brigadier Arthur Nichols of the Coldstream Guards, who was awarded a posthumous George Cross for inspiring courage and leadership while organising guerrilla warfare in Albania in 1943. Major David Smiley of the Blues, Lord Jellicoe Coldstream Guards, also operated in Albania and elsewhere with the SAS. Captains Stanley Moss, Coldstream Guards, and Lee Fermor, Irish Guards, carried out the dramatic kidnapping in his own garrison area in Crete of General Kriper, commander of the German Sevastopol Division. November 1942 saw dramatic changes in the North African campaign. The 8th Army victory at El Alamein on the 4th of November forced the Germans to retreat westwards again, abandoning Tobruk. Meanwhile, on the 8th of November, the first Allied assault landing of the war, Operation Torch, was carried out under General Eisenhower at Algiers and Casablanca, at the other end of North Africa, as part of a strategic pincer movement against the Africa Corps. 850 ships put ashore the British 1st Army and the United States 2nd Corps with virtually no opposition as the Allies swept rapidly eastwards in an effort to capture Tunis and Bizera before the enemy could recover. But the Germans were able to fly in reinforcements from Europe very rapidly. They managed not only to halt the Allied advance some 15 miles short of Tunis but also to hit back strongly. Knightsbridge and Tobruk were already well-known names. Now the guardsmen of the 1st Army were about to win recognition on two craggy desert features called Longstop Hill and the Boo. One of the three gateways to the coastal plain of Tunis was barred by these formidable features. To the north of the road was Jebel Achmera, known to the world as Longstop Hill. Five miles to the east was Jebel Bu'auden, or the Boo. The 1st Guards Brigade was to see much of both of them over the next six months. On the 22nd of December, 2nd Battalion Coldstream Guards were ordered to capture Longstop in order to open up the way for the 6th Armoured Division to break out and capture Tunis. The attack was successful, and the positions were handed over that same night to an American unit. It had not been realised, however, that the Longstop was dominated from behind by another feature, Jabal El Rara. This was still in German hands, and from there the enemy mounted fierce attacks which drove the Americans back. So within six hours of marching back to their concentration area, the weary Coldstream guards were ordered to turn about, plod back over twelve muddy miles and recapture Longstop. They did so, and then held it, with the help of the Americans and French troops, all under the command of the Coldstream guards commanding officer. But the Germans were also aware of the importance of Longstop, and on Christmas Day they attacked again, this time with heavy armoured cards, and recaptured it for a second time. The Coldstream Guards lost 210, and the Americans with them, also fought with great courage, lost 300. There was no chance now of capturing Tunis by a swift coup, and with the onset of winter, a period of static warfare set in. Fighting was fierce, but the Germans kept up heavy pressure against the First Army and the Americans in the hope of defeating them, before the advancing 8th Army closed in from the east. 
a reorganised 1st Guards Brigade with 3rd Battalion Welsh Guards, who had joined in February 1943 in place of the Hampshire Regiment, was now in Army Reserve. This involved constant moves from one area to another to deal with the persistent enemy attacks, and indeed they were called upon so often to plug holes they became known as the Plumbers, a title also earned by their fathers in the Guards Division in the Great War. In March, the 24th Guards Brigade also joined the 1st Army from the UK, while in the same month the 201st Guards Brigade rejoined the 8th Army after a 2,000-mile drive from Syria. There were thus nine Guards Battalions in three Guards Brigades fighting in North Africa. The Deputy Supreme Commander was General Alexander, Irish Guards. With, under him as Commander of 30 Corps, Lieutenant General Oliver Lees, Coldstream Guards who had previously commanded the Guards Armoured Division, so the House of Division was well represented on the North African front. The next two months saw the crushing of the Axis forces in North Africa through a series of attacks by the 1st and 8th Armies coordinated by General Alexander. The 8th Army drew first blood on the 6th of March when the 201st Guards Brigade were involved in a highly successful defensive battle at Tajera Kabir, in which the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards particularly distinguished themselves knocking out no less than 52 German tanks. Rommel now withdrew to the Marath line, about three miles in front of which was a 600-foot feature known as the Horseshoe, covering the approach to the main positions. It was reported to be lightly held, and the 201st Guards Brigade were given the supposedly simple task of capturing it as the prelude to a major assault against the Marath line itself. The attack was carried out by the 6th Battalion Grenadier Guards and the 3rd Battalion Coldstream Guards on the 16th of March 1943. In the event, it was a disaster. The outpost, which was reported to be so thinly held that the defenders had not even been able to lay a minefield, turned out to be a prepared position defended by the greater part of the 90th Light Division, reinforced by a battalion of Panzer Grenadiers. In addition, the position was so heavily mined in three thick belts that no supporting weapons could be got forward to support the infantry. Finally, the enemy had discovered from prisoners the exact plan of attack and they therefore directed their artillery and machine gun fire onto the likely approaches with deadly accuracy. The attack went in, despite the unexpected minefields and the heavy mortar fire, and both battalions gained their objectives, but the forward companies had suffered up to 75% casualties. Then the Germans began to infiltrate behind them, cutting them off from each other and from the reserve companies. No supporting vehicles or weapons could be got forward and the casualties mounted steadily. Clearly the position could not be held once daylight came, and so the order was given to withdraw. But it did not reach all the forward platoons, and of those who did receive it, many could not get back. The Grenadiers lost 24 officers and 255 men, no less than 14 officers being killed, a tragic blow for the battalion in its first battle. The Coldstream casualties were 10 officers and 126 men. But the ring was now tightening around Tunis and on the 7th of April 1943 it was finally closed. At the Guards Museum, on Chapel Square, sits the Marath Cross, which stands in testament to the huge losses suffered by the 6th Battalion Grenadiers. With the stage now set for the final assault, General Alexander was given command of the Allied forces in Tunisia. His plan for the final round was simple. The Americans on the left of the Allied front 
and the 8th Army on the right were to apply pressure on the Germans to pin down each flank. He would then launch the most powerful assault possible against the German centre. This was not only the shortest route to Tunis, but would also split the German forces in two. The axis for the final thrust was northeast from Mejed el-Bab. The two features of Longstop Hill and the Bu, which controlled this approach, had therefore to be regained from the Germans, who had held them up since Christmas. The capture of Longstop was allotted to the 78th Division, and the Bu to the 1st Division, who in turn gave the task to the 24th Guards Brigade. It was a formidable undertaking. Starting on the 23rd of April, Good Friday and also St George's Day, the brigade fought its way forward for seven miles to get within striking distance of the two great hills. That done, the main attack was planned for 1830 hours on the 27th of April, but at noon it was put forward to 1600 hours, with the result that everything had to be done in a great rush and the platoon commanders ended up giving out their orders on the move. The 4,000-yard advance was across open ground, and it was now to be carried in broad daylight. The objectives of the attack were the two ridges running parallel to the line of advance. Point 171 on the left was allocated to the 5th Battalion Grenadier Guards, while points 212 and 214 on the right were given to the 1st Battalion Irish Guards. A thousand yards behind them loomed the Boo itself due to be captured by the 1st Battalion Scots Guards in Phase 2 of the operation. As the two battalions crossed the start line, they immediately came under anticipated intense and accurate fire. All over the cornfields through which they were advancing appeared a forest of rifle butts, marking where the wounded lay. But still the thin lines of guardsmen strode forward, as they had done at Blenheim, Fontenoy, Alma and at Luce. We could not believe it, commented a German prisoner afterwards. We thought no one could cross that plain. Down on that plain, an Irish guardsman is recorded as remarking, Thank God for drill. It keeps you going. The Irish guards gained their objective, but with heavy casualties. The final objective was taken and held throughout that night by a subaltern and 12 men, who also captured 60 prisoners and four guns. The Irish guards on the right reached point 212, but by then had only 173 men left in the battalion. Three of the four companies had only one officer left and were completely cut off. No supporting arms could reach them and for the next two days they held grimly on to their bare rock hilltop against a series of heavy German attacks by tanks, guns and infantry, which came not only from the Boo itself, but also from their open right flank and even from the rear. It was close quarter fighting, with the guardsmen reduced at one point to throwing rocks at the Germans having run out of grenades. Lance Corporal Keneally won a Victoria Cross for extraordinary gallantry in attacking single-handedly a massive body of enemy and breaking up an attack on two occasions, an achievement that can seldom have been equalled. In fact, it was remarkably similar to the feat of Lance Corporal O'Leary Victoria Cross of the Irish Guards in 1915 and it's intriguing to wonder whether this is just a coincidence or whether one inspired the other. The attack on the Boo itself was carried out as the next phase by 1st Battalion Scots Guards, and they reached the peak, point two two six. Captain Lord Lyle won a posthumous Victoria Cross for his gallantry in leading his company and attacking a German gun position single-handedly. 
Tragically, communications were so bad that the troops on the objective could not get through on the wireless to report their success, but they could receive messages and they were ordered to withdraw, an error based on false information that they had failed to reach their objective. They obeyed the order and returned, only to be told a few hours later, when the truth was realised that they must go back and repeat the operation. But it was too late. The Germans had occupied the Boo in strength, one officer and one guardsman only of the Scots guards reached the summit the second time. Then, the weary and depleted battalion was attacked by tanks and was in danger of being completely cut off. They were therefore again ordered to withdraw to positions behind the Grenadiers. For a further six days, 24th Guards Brigade held on to their exposed positions against constant attacks. By 1st of May, the Irish Guards were reduced to a mere 80 men and were relieved. The remaining two battalions were still there, when on the 6th, the Duke of Wellington's regiment came through and captured the Boo. It had been a gruelling battle, but it had contributed greatly to the breakout which now took place. The divisional commander wrote that, while it was impossible to differentiate between the battalions, the story of the Irish Guards on Hill 212 will always stand in red letters on the page of that glorious regiment's history. A great white cross stands on Hill 212, commemorate that story. While the Battle of the Boo was being fought, General Alexander had assembled his striking force for the final drive through to Tunis. On the 3rd of May he secretly transferred from the 8th Army to the 1st Army Front, one armoured division and one infantry division, together with the 201st Guards Brigade, who were now put into the 6th Armoured Division alongside the 1st Guards Brigade. All three Guards Brigade were thus in at the kill. On the 6th of May, two infantry and two armoured divisions swept forward on a narrow front from Majed el Bab, and on the next day both Tunis and Bizerta were captured. The 6th Armoured Division was then freed to clear the Bon Peninsula, and the 1st Guards Brigade, together with an armoured regiment, cleared the key town of Hammam Leif, east of Tunis, after a brisk action. It was the end, and General Alexander was able to signal to Winston Churchill Sir, it is my duty to report the Tunisian campaign is over. All enemy resistance has ceased. We are the masters of the North African shores. So that's where we'll leave the story of the guards in the Second World War for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about these brave exploits from these remarkable soldiers. If you've enjoyed this episode, you might consider leaving a small donation, which you can do through our website, which is www.theguardsmuseum.com then look for the Support Us button. I've been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 15 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next week, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away.